Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis and New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Just see, you know, one, one concept I hear about often is, is passive income. You, right. see, you hear a lot of uh, YouTube financial gurus or even these ads that pop up on my Facebook that talk about passive income. What, what is passive income? Do you think a lot of it is, is scams? And what, what does passive income mean, mean to you? So passive income, or I guess better known as residual income, it's obviously a really uh, profitable means of having side income that generates for you as you go throughout your weeks and months. Um, but yes, I will have to admit that a lot of it is fool's gold. So a lot of folks who've made it off of possibly inheritance or a company that's worked out really well, and when you have large sums of money, it's so much easier to make extra money that's working for you. Um, as a really simple example, if you were to go to the bank and you know let your money sit there, um, even though a lot of us may not obviously indulge in the concept of interest, but the point is you put a million dollars in there, yes, it's going to grow at least thousands and thousands of dollars a month, right? But true passive income, I think, is harder to find. Um, and there are a few ways in which you can accumulate that. Um, I'll start by saying um, Quora. Quora is actually a good way to basically ask questions. And if they see that you're asking very thoughtful questions, they'll automatically basically give you um, a few cents per question or sometimes even a few hundred dollars. Uh, if people are very um, active in the discussion or you answered a question that has gotten a ton of responses, they pay you, right? So that's a really good way to earn passive income. Um, blogging. Um, and while everyone thinks of blogging as I have to be the next recipe blogger or you know, provide some next level insight into area X, that's not necessarily the case. If you were to basically even chronicle what your life's been like or some of the struggles that are common to the entire community, um, I, for one, you know, mental health is something that I'm very passionate about. It took me 10 plus years to finish school, you know, um, and I think from a Desi community standpoint or even Bengalis in general, mental health is something that's routinely ignored. Um, and that's something that I also have been able to profit off of. I mean, not just profit, but A, spread a message that's, I, I believe, to be very relevant and B, at the same time, earn money off of it. Uh, those are like two ways of passive income. I can definitely go into more areas, but those are two things that people can do within, I guess, in a, a complete day. And then they'll have the opportunity to earn all throughout their uh, months, years, and hopefully lifetime to come. That's interesting. Yeah. And you may just mentioned things that I didn't, I didn't, well, the Cora thing I didn't know about. I, I didn't know they actually pay you. I find that really interesting. So uh, the, you have to sign up for a Cora account to, to, to see the answers, right? So they, so the people that, that answer the questions get a cut of that. Yeah. So it's, they have their own algorithm. It's, uh, it's very similar to how, Google ads work or Google activity work. So when they see that there's been a ton of impressions on a particular question, I've asked ridiculous questions. Sometimes I've provoked um, 
you know, the Red Hats from time to time. <laughs> saying, hey, why do you guys love this guy so much? He's a beep. He's a this. He's a that. And honestly, that generated a decent amount of, I guess, hate. Um, a lot of it against me. You know, shut up, libtard. Shut up this. Shut up that. That's all good because, hey, it's generating enough uh, feedback for um, Cora to pay me. And I think that's pretty cool. Wow. wow. Do you have do you have to be at a certain level, like have a certain amount of interactions? Like you can't just be a fresh account. Yeah. This, so right? you I have think, to be kind of established. Yeah, that's a good point. I think they caught people off guard, including myself. So I've had a core account for a few years. Um, I've actively engaged in discussions and all of a sudden they've given me an invitation to basically um, ask questions, answer them as I see fit. And then from there, I've seen a lot of people, even if you had maybe a year's worth of interaction, but it's like active, um, they give you the opportunity to learn, which is pretty good. Earn and learn at the same time. So it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, as a Bengali, Cora is really frustrating because, you know, you'll get like the snippet of your answer that you're looking for. And then the rest of it, you, they give you that button where you have to pay. And it really frustrates me. <laughs> oh, boy. We yeah. can't pay for anything. Yeah. No. Um, I don't blame you guys. Content should be free, at least so to some extent. One of, yeah. the things, uh, one of the things that, you know, we notice about those quote-unquote financial gurus on Facebook and YouTube, like I talked about, is, right. is, is I feel like they, they're preaching things, uh, but I don't know if they've actually lived it. Um, and I know looking at your background, like you're, you talk about, um, you know, financial literacy and a lot of these other, um, you know, ways to make money, but you're, you're all, you've also lived it. So talk about your background a little bit. And, you know, yeah, man. Um, to your first point, uh, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I've tried reaching across many domains of folks uh, within our community to see how much they know. And unfortunately, I find a lot of folks, they're, I guess they're of the approach of fake it till you make it kind of thing. And while that's awesome and relatively popular in today's day, I think that's not the right way to go about it, right? Um, so one of the, I guess, starting from my own background, like even though my parents are not necessarily poor, they're not exactly rich at the same time. You know, um, my father had to work basically seven days a week for a good portion of his life. Um, and he enjoys that. And while that's true, I don't think he should have had to do that. Um, there were times where I had to pick out quarters from my couch to afford a MetroCard, you know? Um, yeah, I could have asked my dad for a hundred bucks, but you know, when you see your parents, I guess, struggling, um, they can put food on the table, but they're busting their ass to do so, you know? Um, asking them for a dime is like, it's, it's a slap across their face in terms of how much time they've invested in me. So when I went to college, I blew my scholarship money, I think whatever extra that I had in the first two and a half semesters into the stock market. So, you know, as everyone does, you think, oh, it's low, let me buy now um, and wait till it goes high, right? Which is the approach a lot of people have. And unfortunately, you know, in the 2008 crisis, um, it didn't bode too well for me. Uh, I bought thinking that some of these companies would go back up. Unfortunately, they went bankrupt. Um, and there went, I guess, $3,000 of free money that, I guess, CUNY gave me. Um, oh, yeah. um, I've tried many different ways, but as they say, failure truly is your best teacher. Um, you know, and my mom comes back from a, comes from a very traditional 
background. So she's like, you know, look what you did with your money. You know, you're getting free education. The rest of it, you could have done something good with it. And while she was right, that kind of motivated me to understand what it is that I'm doing wrong. And don't get me wrong, I didn't start um, going to school for finance. I went to school, took all my sciences. I wanted to be a psychiatrist or a clinical psychologist, uh, depending on what the market was like. And, you know, I think one of the most uh, financially wise decisions I've made was not to pursue med school. Uh, don't get me wrong. I have nothing but respect for anyone and everyone who does. But, you know, unless you have a very high paying specialty or you're a surgeon, uh, being a doctor is very financially inefficient. Don't, again, don't get me wrong. It is one of the most rewarding professions, if not the most rewarding profession, seeing people heal at the, I guess, at the cost of your own hands, which is great. Um, But a lot of folks don't put that um, correlation that, all right, if I go to school for 12 years and I come out with X amount of debt, how many Y years will it take for me to pay this off? When do I want to start a family? When do I want to do everything? Um, And when do I want to, I guess, pay back my own parents, right? So those are some of the questions that were central to my focus of interest. Um, And then navigating through college, mental health became, I guess my passion but to you know to i guess fund for my masters and then my doctorate um i had bills to pay um and i could take out loans but i seen what it did to folks who are five six seven years older than me when i was in my early 20s and i was like no i'm not doing this right um and not to belittle anyone who did but you're basically signing up for financial slavery there there are folks that i know uh their loan surpassed 350k and during residency they were paying their loans back in in the sense that they were paying the monthly interest by the time they finished residency after 36 months of payments they owed more than they initially started with just because of the concept of compounded interest right so that's where my i guess pursuit to understanding finance in addition to mental health kind of coincided um I would say in my later years of college, right when I was about to graduate, I had to make a call. I was like, all right, do I really want to be a medical doctor or do I want my doctoral degree in an area or at a concentration that I can help, but also earn a very comfortable living? You know, um, what a lot of Bengalis don't know, especially parents, is that you know, clinical psychologists, private ones, earn north of $300 per hour. Um, and while the money is great, that's not the only reason you do it, but let's be real. A lot of Bengali parents equate, you know, the concept of medicine to the ultimate um, lifestyle, you know, like, oh, you make a lot of money. That's not true anymore. That was true in the 90s. That was also true up to 2004. But Mm -hmm. what you'll see is a huge trajectory difference from 2003 to 2010. Is that because of the health insurance companies that doctor salaries aren't as lucrative anymore? Um, I think their salaries were very lucrative, but in the 90s, uh, if you notice, doctors were still paid hefty salaries. It's just that no one else was, right? So engineers, it's all relative. okay, right, right. It was all relative. But then, uh, you know, post 2K, you started to see a wave of like I have friends or even myself, like people who are day traders, they'll laugh at physician salaries. They're like what? So you're telling me that you work 80 hours a week? And after taxes, you are left with eight to 10 grand a month. Oh, sorry, like nine to 11 grand a month. 
Um, and so obviously trading went, I mean, trading has always been there, but digital media and startups, right? With the advent of Uber, Facebook, um, there are folks from Bangladesh. When I had a tutoring center, I used to help them, like they know basic English, but I used to help them get IT jobs. So they were coming here and within three months, they started making anywhere from 60K to 120K, right? And this is without much education or at least a formal education in the United States. So these jobs definitely, you know, made, I guess, the risk to reward ratio of going through medicine or some of the higher specialties irrelevant. Again, you know, for those who truly love medicine and actually want to help people and save lives, hey, you know, all the, all the best to them. But that's no longer the case. And, you know, aside from digital media, what you're also seeing is a shift in the way people earn multiple incomes. Um, in our parents' generation, the dream was, hey, I'm going to own a house. I'm going to have a lawn. I'm going to have this job. I'm going to wear a suit to work. And I'm going to walk with my chest up high kind of thing, right? We, to some extent, laugh at that in the sense that, hey, that's awesome. So it's taking you, you bought a half a million dollar house. You put 20% down. It's going to take you 30 years to pay that off. But not only the half a million dollars, did you know you pay more than half a million dollars in interest? So really, you're paying $1.1 million for a house that only costs half a million dollars. Why would you subject yourself to that? You know, and that's how I see right. it. But um, you know, to explain this concept to my own parents, to help them, uh, and you know, to help them sell their own loans off, or like, we have multiple properties, get rid of this one, and let's pay this off. Because I don't think you guys fathom what, you know, what compounded interest honestly looks like. Times have changed, salaries have changed, um, and I can name five professions right off the top of my head that make more than the typical, you know, designated desi profession of medicine or raw engineering. Um, so you talked about grad school and, and and doctor. So how did you end up paying for that? So I paid part of it through obviously some work from home jobs, but a lot of it was also trading. Um, oh. I was always invested into penny stocks. So the very same thing that caused me a ton of headache was something that I started to get the hang of. Uh, by get the hang of, I mean, I started to understand technical analysis. So what a lot of people forget is that um, Japanese candlesticks are about a 70%. They hold about a 70% success rate in terms of figuring out where price will stop and where price will exit. So, you know, those are the two most important things. Uh, the worst thing you can hear people say is like, hey, buy so-and-so stock. This is a great value. Everyone can buy a stock. When do you sell it? At what price do you buy it, right? Um, and, you know, people will always mention these cliche names like, hey, get into Tesla, get into Uber, get into Facebook. The reality is if you have $500 to invest, the likelihood of Apple doubling or tripling will take years, if not months, right? Um, and while penny stocks holds a higher degree of risk and volatility, um, once you start to understand some of the more, um, I guess, critical indicators such as volume, such as, uh, hey, what were their earnings like, such as um, how other traders are reacting, you will have a much better shot at profiting. Because no matter how um, promising a company seems, you have to remember what the stock market is. It's a measurement of transferring equity from one person to the other. So that means if there are 10 people in a room 
Your job isn't necessarily to figure out the value of that company. Your job is to figure out how can you beat out the other eight people or nine people in the room so that you can exit at a price that they're possibly buying at. Um, and also patience. Um, if you freak out, um, that is a recipe for disaster. So there's been times where I've, I've been down $35,000 and that's a lot of money for me at, at that time, you know? Um, and it's a lot of money for it. I guess most of us, right? I think at any point in time, it's like, hey, I, I was up 2000 now I'm down 35000 But something Warren Buffett said uh, kind of turned my life around in the sense that the stock market is an instrument for which, you know, the impatient transfers money to the patient, right? Um, as long as you have an understanding of what you're doing, again, via technical analysis, understanding fundamentals, I think you'd be in a decent place. Uh, those two things really helped me fund my school, um, help my parents financially as well. Um, and then I think once I finished my master's, I was in a pretty good place to take control of the family finances along with my own finances. Yeah, you know, let's talk about uh, penny stocks and, and also just uh, types that type of investment in general. And I'm just, you, you mentioned it and it's, it's the risk and reward factor. Um, right. So I, you, you specifically said $500 and I, I want to talk about that. So what, what, are you, what are your thoughts on specifically investing in penny stocks? Should someone invest money that they saved or that they need or should they invest money in, uh, let's say, in penny stocks that they could potentially live without? Because I, I, my feeling is, like you said, um, with penny stocks, they can go to, you know, a hundred to a thousand, but they could also go from hundred to zero very quickly. Um, Absolutely. So, so, um, you know, my thoughts with, with penny stocks is always it's a great gamble, but you shouldn't be investing money you need to pay your light bills. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, and and. Uh, but, and to your point, um, you're not, you know, people say this all the time, you know, 500, I have $500. Can I put it? Yeah. Apple's not going to make that your $500 into a thousand dollars. That's just not going right. to happen. It right. may take your $500 and make it into $512, but right. you're not going to, you know, you're not going to make all this money, but, um, uh, talk about how you, um, what kind of stuff are you in, invested in right now with the market being, the way it is, um, you know, um, in, at all time, all time lows, what kind of stuff are you looking at right now? Absolutely. So I think every day there's always some um, site of news or like, let's say company X has gotten very good positive trials for coronavirus in patients who are in, I don't know, stage four respiratory failure or something of that nature. So things like that, biopharmaceutical stocks, they will always have some degree of news that's kind of like fool's gold. But at the same time, you have to remember how the average investor reacts. So a lot of folks, they have hundreds of thousands of dollars to throw around. So if one of these pharmaceutical companies, or I guess most of them, if they're like a dollar or 60 cents or $5, the likelihood of that going up even for that day is, you could say, a very strong, a very strong possibility of it going 100 to 200 percent, specifically for that uh, specifically for that session. Like so, let's say from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., you will have um, a 150 percent gain. Your 
you, what you're looking for is what at what price can I get in and what price can I get out? And that is all technical analysis, understanding levels of support and resistance, and really seeing how other traders react. While that's also true, volume is really important, right? So you, the point of the stock market for any stock is it has to keep moving, either in a positive or in a negative direction. Once price starts, starts to stall, you know a reversal is most likely up um, in the works. So how do you know that? Like, is it going to reverse? Is it going to continue? So these are the things that I guess years of TA actually help you understand. And a lot of it is experience. And I don't mean that in a, oh, you got to do this for a while to get the hang of it. But it's, you've been burned so many times that you have a good idea of, all right, man, if this even goes up, uh, I don't know, 5,000%, I have to live with it. Trading is 50% mental because you have to understand. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, my naive self in 2014, I bought a penny stock called MRNA. Um, it was 15 cents. I went up to 90 cents. I was like, oh man, I made a killing. Today, that stock is $50, wow. right? And yeah. Oh, wow. So <laughs> you live with regrets of yeah. that nature. It's like, oh, 10,000 shares, no big deal. I'll put it in. Imagine what that, now this imagine right there, that is the root of the problem. Um, and this is what kills traders. This is what kills, I know, uh, uncles of mine who are, I guess they've been investors for some time, but this is how they get burned. And they then, at this point, try to look at stocks that are similar or try to find a pattern and invest large sums of money, hoping one of these will go up. Listen, that luck, um, I'm not, while I am a religious person, I do believe that's dictated by God. What, whatever it is that you believe in, whether it's fate, nature, some cosmic universal force, the point is you have to find a uh, modality of thought that says, all right, every day I'm going to start with this much money and I'm going to exit at 20% and I'm going to leave this trade once it goes down no more than 15%. Um, and then once you profit off of that trade, get it off your watch list. Do not talk about it. Do not look back at it. You know, um, I can live with the results of mRNA, but you know, I get uh, my wife, my dad, you know, they make fun of me to this day. They're like, oh yeah, you know, you were so proud of it. You put it up on Facebook, you made four times your profit. <laughs> it's a $50 stock, you know, and it's taking an active role in this Corona vaccine battle. Um, and, you know, it's received quite, I guess, quite a few rounds of um, financing and pretty large numbers. So, Penny stocks, like you said, they're a hit or miss, but if you can formulate a trading strategy, it really works well in the sense that as long as it works for you seven out of 10 times and you have a certain amount of capital, you can take that as a short-term um, gain every day. And then in terms of the long run, uh, there are companies that I find some promise to um, that I do believe purely off of speculation and purely off of how um, investors are reacting. Uh, there's a company uh, that used to basically do massages at the airport, right? Um, and then now I think they realize that, dude, there's nobody that's going to let anyone touch them for a long time. That's honestly what's going to happen. So they turned their entire airport centers into real estate for testing. So even if the economy opens up, you know, as a result of this brilliant orange man, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're going to see obviously the need for testing. If people are about to board an airplane or get off of an airplane, if you have testing centers that's immediately available, I see the huge promise in, um, 
I guess, revenue for them um, and also benefit to humanity as a whole. And, you know, if they're trading at pennies, yeah, I see that. I see the possibility. But listen, it's very possible that their patents or all of this, they get beat out by another company who does it better than them. So I'm going to take that risk to reward ratio. It's like, all right, from this penny stock, which was once an $1,100 stock, by the way, um, it can happily return to the $300 per stock levels, or it can actually go to zero. If I lose those few thousand dollars, sure, I can live with that. But if I gain, that will be an upturn of over 1,500%, you know? So these are some of the ways that I evaluate it, but there are obviously small term gains and then long term gains. Um, and the other misconception in a lot of our communities is, you know, trading is haram. Uh, it depends, right? Like if you're buying and selling stock, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, if you're buying and selling stock into something that's a little bit more controversial, sure, um, that's not right. But that's with anything if you want to go through that route. But there are absolutely many opportunities that you can still take advantage of irrespective of your personal or religious beliefs. Um, talk about the, um, the different types of trading. So, you know, there's uh, day trading, swing trading. Well, talk about um, the different types of trading. So um, a lot of swing traders, they basically look for momentum, right? Like something is, um, I don't know, making higher highs and higher lows. What that means is a stock never goes up exponentially uh, without, I don't know, like very out of the world kind of news. So typically, if a stock is healthy and it's going up, it will go up and then it will go down slightly. It will go up, it will go down slightly. Now, when it goes down, it'll obviously be less than the amount that it went up. But these retracement levels uh, are usually met at Fibonacci numbers, uh, better known as Fibonacci retracement levels. Um, and, you know, something that if you do some research, uh, everything in this world is dictated by some degree of Fibonacci. If you look at the number of flower petals on a flower mm. or thorns in a sunflower, right? Everything or the number of grass that even a weed, sorry, the number of uh, weeds that grow on a particular weed branch, they all have Fibonacci numbers. Um, and not getting into, you know, the complexity of all of this, but I believe God designed everything with precise with like fine-tuned precision right so if you have that understanding you will find the same logic in your swing trades when you look for um, hey where do i buy where do i sell oh this is going up but once once it's going up you should wait for that price to slightly retrace but where do you know it stops so there are typically levels at which it stops there are typically three to five levels and if you see that it holds at one of the particular levels hey that's a good time to buy so that's the strategy that a lot of um, swing traders implement. Day trading is you take large amounts of volume, so large amounts of capital, and you're really looking for a few cents gain. You buy something at 15 cents. Uh, if it goes up to 20 cents, which is a very likely possibility off of good news in one day, um, yeah, you, you've basically profited a, a good amount. So if you're at $10,000, you're definitely a few thousand dollars richer. Um, there's stocks, there are also Forex, there are also futures. Uh, there are many, many types of trading that's available. Um, the US stock market is just one example. Uh, foreign exchange trading is the largest trading market in the world uh, where trillions of dollars are exchanged in a daily time span. And the way that works 
is you are essentially trading currency pairs, hoping that one goes better than the other. And a lot of it is also determined by TA, technical analysis, um, and some of it is also fundamental. For instance, if a bank is going to announce a bank rate or an interest rate, um, you know, cut or an increase, whatever the case may be, or like non-farm payrolls, which is actually happening today, ironically, um, it's a measure of how, um, you know, how much money has been given to employees in the United States, excluding farm income. So that's a good indicator of, um, you know, how your economy is doing, at least for the United States. So every country has something similar. So there are a lot of these economic indicators that help traders um, figure out which direction or which way the trades are headed or these currency pairs are headed. Um, and then futures and then oil commodities, gold, silver, these are also bought um, at its core values. Like for instance, the price of crude oil. Uh, when people say, hey, oil is down, what does that mean? That means a barrel of crude oil is trading at a certain price. I'm sure you guys have heard uh, two weeks ago, oil crashed, like it went below mm -hmm. zero. So these things are good times to understand, hey, when should I rebuy? And when should I resell? You know, when should I sell? So, you know, playing around with all of the commodities, stocks, um, and you know, futures. Futures are basically you know months ahead in terms of where do you think this commodity or stock will be sixty days from today or X amount of time from today. Um, so there's a lot of different things, but I also think having too much information um, and today's. You know, today's generation, I include myself as part of it. So it's not like I'm just shitting on the younger generation. Um, what, what happens is everybody's trying to find the wave that someone wrote to get rich or they an Instagram, Instagram made it popular to showcase the highs in your life. Nobody's going to show, crap, I lost 50 grand on this. Crap, I got sick. Damn, I lost my family member. So what this creates Everybody has this sense of FOMO and everyone has creative license to showcase the most shittiest product or the most shittiest analysis and make it look legit. And what I find often is that people fall prey to, yeah, the, you know, rental Lamborghinis that somebody paid $400 just to rent a Lamborghini. People do that for music videos, you know? So it's not really hard to do that for, um, you know, your own Instagram page and, Bottom line is they're more obsessed with looking successful than actually being successful, if that makes sense. Yeah, so you, you talked about technical analysis earlier. And also, you, you know, you, you have this mental uh, health background. So you're also able to control your emotions and ride the wave, um, you know, uh, more efficiently than someone else. So if someone is not, um, you know, uh, they're not familiar with technical analysis like you are, and also, right. they're just not um, able to, um, uh, you know, control their emotions. And because you said trading is all emotions, if they can't do those things, would you still suggest that they they, they trade? Uh, absolutely not. I think uh, understanding those indicators and technical analysis is crucial to becoming a successful day trader. How long did it take you to uh, really understand technical technical analysis? Understanding, I'd say. 12 months to 18 months um, to experience it and become very seasoned at it, I'd say a few years. So see, I, so I think that's really important because I just, I don't want, I would definitely wouldn't want someone that's out of college 
you know, right now, especially that can't find a job and it's like, okay, let me go day trade and make a living off of it. Cause I think what you just said is really important. It took you 12 months to really understand technical analysis and a couple of years. Right. And I appreciate you for being honest about that because I think that's important. It takes time, right? I can't just, you know, come out the gate and expect to be a, you know, a thousandaire or a millionaire from day trading. It takes time. It takes a lot of effort. I'm sure you do a lot of reading. I'm sure you, you know, you, like you said earlier, you've also, you also talked about your losses, which is important. And then you right. rebounded from that. Um, so I think that kind of stuff is really important. I appreciate you talking about your losses too. Cause like you said, not everybody talks about your, their losses. Very important, man. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for all the day trading information. I think that that's super helpful. Um, as an overview, but you know, we're at a time where a lot of people wish they had passive income now more right. than ever, you know, like right. uh, savings that they could dip into as a lot of Bengali parents have lost their job. Um, so how do you recommend someone starts off on, on generating passive income, especially for the older folks? Um, I think for the older folks, real estate is a key way to go. It's more of a sure method. Um, and the reason being is that Albany, Buffalo, Niagara Falls, um, uh, uh, North Carolina, and even uh, Orlando, Florida. These are still very good rental markets. And the reason I say that is we are all privileged um, and we're all very blessed, every single person in this podcast, because we have the opportunity to get on Zoom and, you know, I guess, ask, learn, showcase our viewpoints. You know, we, can, we know where our next meals come from in these areas that I described. Okay. A lot of these folks don't know that. They don't know where their income will come from, right? So, um, A, you can actually do someone a favor by helping them um, by saying, hey, look, the rent is here. Let's make it $200 less or whatever it is or $500 less. And they will be so, so appreciative of the fact that you did that because their previous landlords were assholes. At the same time, these properties are like cash properties, Anywhere from twenty-eight dollars to $55,000, you can get an okay home. Remember, these are not homes that you're buying for aesthetic appeal. Rather, homes that you're buying so that they're bought in cash. The taxes on these are like eight dollars to $900 a year. Um, and once you've purchased them, it's like, all right, you know, I can live with the $800 or $900 I get in a month. Um, they're still responsible for basic utilities. And the cost to maintenance on a property manager all comes out to possibly 300. So the average person or the average family might have 50 to $100,000 saved. And if you were to buy multiple houses in one transaction, that's a steady income of somewhere of $2,000 to $3,000 depending on that monthly maintenance for that property or properties. Um, so I think that's a really good way to start. Right. Um, do, you, do you have to flip these houses or... or- and do some work on them and put some more money in once you buy them? A um, little bit of work always helps to get that extra 150 bucks, but not necessarily flip them. So a true flip, you know, for the lack of a better term, is you buy, you buy something, you put a lot of money into, I guess, making it better aesthetically, fundamentally, and then you sell it, right? Um, so these, you're kind of looking to say, all right, let me do the paint. If there's a kitchen, if the kitchen looks odd, you can buy cabinets, an entire kitchen's cabinets for $800. A stove is like 400 bucks. A fridge is like $500. So for $1,500 to $2,000, you can actually have a complete kitchen remodel. Paint is what, another two, 300 bucks. So for three grand, 
you can really have a new looking place. And at worst case scenario, you know, your flooring might need to be done. And that is a little bit more costlier. But these are all with the assumption that your fundamentals, for instance, foundation, your boiler, your roof, your gutters, your pipes are all intact. I would not recommend, there are some that are like complete rehab. I would not recommend those because one thing people forget is time, right? Um, you can make your money back by investing $10,000 into a $15,000 property, but how long will it take you to take that money to recoup that money back? So I wouldn't recommend complete rehabs, uh, but like the average price for a lot of these homes were aesthetically not so good looking, but they have tenants who live check to check. And remember, you know, there are uh, Section 8 housing and a lot of these folks um, do receive assistance from the government uh, to some extent. It, yes, you know, people will say that, look, you know, you got to deal with the marshals if there's evictions. But truth be told, if you do a general analysis of how the, you know, how the tenants are, you speak to the previous landlord, um, you'll get a good idea of who's paying and who's not. And more importantly, they're four to $500. So one month or two months, they might be short hundred bucks or 150 bucks. It's not going to be earth shattering. Like, all right, we're missing two grand of rent or something of that sort. And like everything else in life, it's still a risk, but I think it's a very, uh, you know, mitigating that risk is very good and it's small. We actually, if you mentioned right. Buffalo and Albany, we featured uh, this article uh, maybe uh, six months ago about this uh, this man uh, from Brooklyn, Bengali man from Brooklyn, who mm-hmm. went up to Buffalo, and he, um, you know, he he bought like fifteen houses from auction, and then every weekend he would just come back to Brooklyn, and you know, in Brooklyn, that's in the neighborhood I grew up in, very congested eight people live in an apartment. So every weekend he came back to Brooklyn and took these people, drove these people up to Buffalo and showed them these huge houses they could live in. And, you know, he bought these houses for four or $5,000 from auction. Um, and then he rented them, he rented them, he rented those people, the, their houses. And, and they all, so now that's, he's actually, and the article talks about, he's one of the first he's people that um, brought like these uh, huge number of families to Buffalo. And now Buffalo has a huge, um, huge uh, Bengali population but that was so that was uh, maybe 15 years ago where prices were f- four to five thousand yeah obviously yeah, a little bit more a little bit more expensive now but when when entering and f- identifying uh, a uh, uh, an area to invest in for real, for real estate what kind of stuff do you look for um certainly so when when you do real estate if it's for passive income um like i said foundations are really important uh, meaning your boilers, your cracks in the ceiling, on the floor, um, trying to see for any water leakage issues and things of that sort, uh, see any taxes owed on the property, um, if there are any um, really foundational issues. Things that are aesthetic actually excite me if, the, if it's broken, like paint, like an old kitchen, like an old bathroom, um, because remodeling those you have to understand the average person never likes to put in work. They like to see results. That's just how most humans are. And you can actually capitalize on that. It's like, Ooh, really nice bathroom, really nice kitchen. Ooh, the paint colors are aesthetically appealing. And I've, I've done Airbnb in the past. 
um, where you know that's far more profitable than monthly uh, rent that you have to deal with, and also far less usage on the tenants themselves. Um, so, what's aesthetically appealing? I've gotten a decent. I, I know it's subjective, but I've gotten a decent handle on that, at least in terms of what the average tenant is looking for. So, those are the things that I look for. But also, it really depends: Am I going to Airbnb this property, or am I really doing this for, um, like, it, it, this is like a set it and forget it kind of thing? All right, I pay twenty five grand. Um, I'm going to make this eight hundred dollars every month. It's just a direct deposit from the property manager who collects the rent into my account. I'll set it and forget it kind of thing. Where, where were your Airbnbs and how did you select that area? Um, Long Island and also uh, in the Queens area, mainly because proximity to New York City is something that everyone craves. You know, New York City is still the mecca of the world. Um, I absolutely hate New York City because I grew up here and I'm tired <laughs> of the community and everything else. But I fully acknowledge that it's a blessing on any given day for everyone from around the world. You know, when I visited some of the countries that I did around the world, they're like, oh, we're from New York. They're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. I'm like, what are you talking about in my head? But, you know, for them, it, it is a blessing. So understanding that, all right, where is Times Square in relation to your property? Okay, do you have a map of how to get? So, yeah, I designed my own map. You can get it done online. So, and do you have your own, like you want, you really want to create the hotel experience and you want to create a very welcoming, um, I guess, time that folks have and they appreciate those little things. And then if you can remain competitively priced, which means, Hey, you're going to get probably at best $2,000 from this rental flat or $2,200 and no offense to Desi's, but they're going to use the water and the gas like it's nobody's business, you know? Um, at least that's been my experience. Um, <laughs> but, you know, with a lot of these folks, they're not even home 90% of the time. So your water's barely used. Your, um, your gas or anything else, your utilities in general are not used. They win. You win. Um, and in that sense, I think that's profitable. But like I said, Long Island, even though it's a little bit further, as long as the proximity to the LIRR is walking distance, they'll take it. You know, because and for those, you could say, hey, look, I'll give you $90 for an entire house, four bedrooms and two baths. And first of all, you know, people from all around the world who are in need will happily take that up. And then, of course, Daisies who have like 30 people will not pay for the hotels. They'll happily take that up as well. And, you know, you always have a security deposit um, and a cleaning fee that, hey, if they break something or they do something of that sort, you can always file a claim. Um, I um, you know, I had good experiences with Airbnb, unfortunately, because of their stance on, you know, their occupation on Palestine, I stopped using them and I now use home away from home, which basically does the same job. It's not as profitable. It's still profitable. But, you know, my humanity is more important than money. If that makes sense. Well, are, in New York, are you, are you allowed to Airbnb properties? Yes, if you own them, and there are restrictions on certain zones, but yep. none of the zones that I have my properties in are under yep. those restrictions. Yeah. So, the, so that's Airbnb. Uh, but talk about what you look for in uh, the markets you enter for um, flips or buy and hold uh, investments. So, uh, like I said, if I'm looking for long-term rental income, uh, I look for communities that are booming. Uh, what does that mean? I look for immigrant populations or 
uh, lower socioeconomic um, neighborhoods. Uh, but it has to be safe at the same time. And if I have those, I guess, if it matches that criteria, I generally also send folks to kind of survey what the average day looks like. You know, what the, you have to understand, like when you walk into a McDonald's, if you see people flying all around cursing, that's, that's a no-no, right? Like you get a general sense of the vibe of the neighborhood. And as long as it's not uh, harmful or possibly or potentially unsafe, uh, that's my first step. I see trains, you know, where is the train or the bus in relation to where I need to go? Um, what is the time like to get to from place A to place B? So these are all the different kinds of things that I look for in addition to, uh, again, the property itself. Um, how much work is this going to take me? I have contractors who, you know, some guy is really good at recessed lighting. Um, some guys really good at flooring and you know over these years I learned things I never thought I would like I know how to do floors now recess lighting how to fix pipes you know plumbing things of this sort while there are very general basic skills this is also something I think our education system never prepare prepares us for like I didn't know how to write a check how to fix a pipe how to flip homes or you know what's good what's not what's a good financial investment I you know I learned everything from my parents learned everything from I guess things they've heard hey so and so is X you should do this too you know it's kind of like and I hate to say this but this is one thing I really hope the next generation of Bengalis steer clear of you know uh, rumor is the way they function whether it's a good thing or it's a bad thing um, yeah. but yeah. yeah and not verifying you know information that they're receiving from other 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 people um, absolutely so talk about what are some other financial literacy, uh, literacy basics that you'd like to emphasize for, for the next generation? So I definitely want them to understand what a 401k is. Um, I would like for them to understand who they are in relation to how they would like to make their lives work with themselves or their spouses. Um, and here's what, what's been my experience. I found folks who didn't have the best of grades to really learn the hardest and most important life lessons. And then I found folks who have nothing but brains and they're awesome at what they do. And, you know, their intellectual aptitude is off the charts, but then, you know, put them into the real world. That's all they've ever learned. And it's like for the practicality of life, uh, they don't know that, Hey, a 401k might not be the best option for me because I'm earning 300 grand plus. If I put this in a different account, this will do wonders for me. At the same time, someone who's earning a different salary base and they honestly love their comfort. Yeah, it's important for them to understand. Let me invest into a 401k that's heavy in, uh, you know, stocks over, you know, general mutual funds. So there are, there are different ways to invest into your 401k. And I think entering the job force uh, a lot of people don't understand that. They just like to say, yeah, man, my company offers a really nice 401k and options. What does that mean for you? You know, so I want them to basically look into this. Um, as with everything else, like uh, me and some of my, uh, you know, family friends from childhood, like, you know, we have a general trading firm. Like, I wouldn't really call it that, but just basically a group where we try to help folks learn stocks, um, you know, Forex or other, some of the other guys do options 
And, you know, what I find is I find a lot of folks coming in like, hey, man, so I have $10,000 or I have $100. Do you think I can turn this into $1,000? I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller, right? But what, like they, they're asking the wrong questions. What I, want them to, what I want them to ask is, hey, so how much of my capital do you think I should use? Um, what type of return can I expect or is it dependent on, you know, a certain type of trade or how often do you trade? Uh, what's the maximum I can lose with this? Um, and, you know, like how disciplined are they? Those are some things that I think are missing and they should ask. In addition to that, um, definitely setting aside startups definitely work in today's day and age. But I'll tell you from my own experience, I have five failed startups. You know, um, I've invested time. I've invested a lot of different things and I've learned from key mistakes. But as long as you have a job and you're good at something, put it to the test. You know, um, even though I've made small inklings of profit or some degree of success in different areas, to be honest, I'm not great at anything. You know, there's not a single thing that I can say that I'm almost the best at. I'm far from it. And that's worked for me. But I know friends who have horrible averages in high school and even college, but they're incredibly skilled at what they do. Um, some of them, you know, for one of them, it's writing. You know, another one that I know, really good comedian. Another guy I know, he's a really awesome artist. Another guy, uh, he's an awesome storyteller, like to the point where he can hold an audience. So whatever the case is, understand your talent. You know, in Japan, the reason why, uh, you know, Japan with such a small country is doing so well and it's performing well with the juggernauts of the world is their entire education system is based on aptitude and quality. Like you're not going to ask a monkey to swim and measure how well that works. I think the education system is designed by folks, I don't want to get into this another story, but they're designed to enslave you in the same way our general tax money is enslaved and it goes to places we honestly don't know past 12%. So definitely take the time to understand what is it that I'm good at. And here's what Bengali parents do a really bad job. And I'm sorry to say this, but this has to change. And for the betterment for them and their own kids in that a banker does not perform surgery. A surgeon does not perform you know, fiscal duties of what a banker does, right? So in life, you end up doing one profession or maybe have a side profession or a side hobby. That's it. So if you can find your niche, that's all that's important. And as long as you can put a price tag on it that someone is willing to pay for, that's great. You found gold. Um, and the last thing is financial literacy is important because if you're, a, let's say you're a psychologist, a psychiatrist, uh, engineer, doctor, lawyer, architect, you name it, software engineer the likelihood of you retiring off of that is very unlikely because the cost of living everywhere you go here, rent is like two grand at least, at least for a comfortable, a decent, you know, quality of living. Uh, put out a, put a car in there, three, $400 payment. We're not even talking about a Benz or any of these things. Um, your average car or lease anywhere from 150 to 350 tackle on insurance, tackle on gas. And then, I hope people shower, you know, like they do their basics that they need to do. They need to eat. They need to shower. They need to groom themselves. The minimum cost to live is $3,000. You know what that means? That means just to survive, you need a 55K job. You know how many Americans in New York City earn below that? 
how do you think debt structures will continue to rise? Um, like, how do you think they are rising? Because this is what's happening. And lastly, credit. Uh, people really underestimate the value of credit. I know I did. I had three collections. I'm like, wow. oh, credit cards. You know? <laughs> well, you know, one, one other thing that you talked about earlier is compound interest. Um, yeah. let's talk about that a little bit because I think that's something that's really, really powerful that I think people talk, uh, forget about. So your compounded interest is that you're taking a specific amount of money and then you're, uh, you're charging interest on a specific time period. And then on the next month, that money that you just basically um, accrued in terms of a balance, interest is now charged on top of that money. So understand what that means over the course of 12 months if you don't start to pay it down from a very earlier period, from an early period of time, right? Um, the dangers of compounded interest are that here's a hundred dollars. Now I owe $150. Now I'm going to charge interest on the interest of that money, which is horrible. Yeah. And, and this basic, this cycle is how basically Americans have, you know, they've gone into debt structure beyond you know, human reasoning. Like, why do you think insurance companies or these personal loan companies or these student loan companies exist? Because they know that the average student is not going to finish college, at least 30% of them at a bare minimum. They also know that the folks who took out the loans, they don't have a solid understanding of my profession pays 80K. If I'm taking out a 200K loan or even a 100K loan, it'll take me six years at a bare minimum post-graduation to pay these off because of compounded interest. Because it, it, every month it compounds the new balance, right? It's charging interest off of that new balance. And then, you know, uh, people don't really have, they don't sit down and actually take the time to say, what does this mean on a numerical value? And also when you get taxed, these numbers like 80K, 100K salary, what that really means is pre-tax, so someone who's saying, oh, yeah, I make 100 grand, what you really make is 73K. Yeah. So, you know, but compounded interest or your payments, they don't do that. They don't say you owe $1,000, but you know what? Take away 27%. You actually owe seven. No, the dollar amount you owe is 100 grand. But when you make 100 grand, you actually make 70K. I also recommend people, especially when they start working, hey, open an LLC. It takes a few hundred bucks, write off some of your expenses. You'll be surprised that that few thousand dollars you get during your tax return season, it goes a long way. And I would recommend take that return and invest it into different areas. Right now, I wouldn't say invest it into anywhere um, other than trading, but wait for... So right now you're in, you're in cash right now? Yeah. Um, so and what, what are your thoughts on the market? What do you think... Uh, it's, what do you, when do you, how long do you think it will take to rebound? So... I, to be honest, I don't even know. And the reason I say that is I'm looking at the charts, um, at least in terms of how the Dow is doing, the S&P, and the markets in general. And the last time we had a similar chart where it's like we saw a 25% drop in the market and then a slow, subtle recovery, um, but that recovery is so stagnant. The last time we had this was the Great Depression, at least in terms of the charts being close to identical. So based off of that, I'm holding on to my cash. I'm trading fine. It's like a day thing or, you know what I mean? But in terms of long-term investment, I'm really holding on to my cash because I don't see 
how the debt ceiling, which has surpassed $1.2 trillion, unemployment numbers, which are staggering, if people are not spending, that money's not flowing back into the economy um, and everything. Oil, fine, let it go up a bit in the summer. And then what? If we have another wave of corona, we're genuinely screwed because there's only so much oil you can store in remote areas until production, until something has to stop, right? Saudis are cutting the price of oil every day just so they maintain the market share. So what will you do once demand drops completely? What will airline companies do? And did you, I don't know if you saw, but the federal government, the Federal Reserve, is, billing, or is pumping money in the 500 billions every other day. How long do you think this can continue? I don't know. So while um, I don't know if there's something I'm missing, I don't see a good pattern, but I don't know how this is going to truthfully um, make a rebound. Or even if it does, I see a small rebound in the summer and then I see a complete crash. But that's just based off of um, the charts. And in terms of the debt numbers, uh, obviously I'm not the one who operates uh, You know these very astute, carefully manipulative bankers control every sort of index in the world, whether it's New York, whether it's London, whether it's anywhere in the world. So they obviously know something I don't, but that's, that's how I see it. Um, I just wanted to, I want to, I want to ask you some, uh, like just quickly, what, uh, if, if I give you two options, choose, uh, choose which one and tell me why. So just for example, um, uh, you talked about uh, financing a car earlier. So finance or lease, what's a better, uh, what's a better option for uh, someone that's starting out? Finance or lease a car? I think that's strictly based off personality, and I'll tell you why. Um, if you are the kind of person who values something and you love that it goes from A to B, and that's the sole reason you're buying a car, it's reliable, it takes you from place A to place B, absolutely go with um, financing it. Buy the car. You can even pay it off early if you wish. Um, all that good stuff. If, however, you're someone who gets tired of their car within two years and you just want a nice car, um, I definitely say a lease is the way to go because you can also bargain that complete lease price. Like say, all right, your lease price for two or three years is, I don't know, 14000 and change. Here, let's come to an agreement. I'll give you cash up front. Here's $12,000. Let me get that lease. And then you could always obviously get into a new car. Um, and, or if you love it so much, you can then have the option to still purchase it outright um, if you wish. So those are the two examples. I personally got burned uh, by two decisions I made, which were horrible financial decisions because I thought I would love this car uh, forever. Uh, I was young. It was 23. I was like, all right, you know what? I love these cars. Yeah, I did for a year and a half. And then I'm like, oh boy, the maintenance on these are horrible. Like yeah. I want a new car at this point. It's a depreciating asset too. So if you're uh, for a primary residence, buy or, or rent? In this market, I'd say rent. If you haven't already purchased, um, yeah. Okay. And, and normally I'd say buy and that's what I've been telling the folks who usually follow my blog and whatnot. But, you know, given what's happened yeah. and given the wrench that's been thrown, yeah, I think rent is a better option. Yeah, you know, I used to live in LIC like you and people should just, uh, 
think I was crazy at the amount of money I was throwing away at rent. But for me, it was more about just like the experience and also the ease, just like just my time. I mean, the time I was getting back by not living really far out in Long Island in a big house. Um, and my commute to work was 10 minutes. Like my, for me, the time was more valuable than anything else. And that was, that's why I was okay with renting and living in LIC, you know, as opposed to having a big house, you know, in, in Long Island or Queens. Absolutely. I think until you have children or if you, and even then, if you don't have a particular need for an open lawn, um, open space, there's no need, you know, it's similar to the decision my wife and I made. For two years, um, we're like, all right, you know, let's try this LIC thing out, um, and then we'll move back uh, to, you know, a more permanent destination for a few years or so. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, I, um, uh, I don't think any Anusha or uh, Anisha, any more questions from you guys. Yeah, I mean, uh, just one one general question of what's next for you. Um, honestly. I'm at a point where obviously I'd like to see where um, my career with clinical psychology goes. So my dream or my envision is to have uh, teletherapy set up for my wife and I, uh, and we'll do that on a maybe once a week kind of basis. Um, and honestly, just enjoy life um, in doing all the things that I've done. And most of them have been failures. I have to add, it's that I've exhausted I guess the concept of, you know, having fun. Like I, I don't know how to have fun on a long-term period. So I'm really looking forward to that and also doing something that I still love that I started 11 years ago, you know? So that's, that's my main goal or that's what's next for me. Um, what's after that or what, what else will, you know, come in between that? I leave that up to God. I don't honestly know. Yeah. Wow, that's that's super exciting. Um, I hope, I hope so. this podcast was was fun. Um, hope you come back on and talk about drill down further on one of elite, maybe one of those topics that we talked about because we covered so many things. We appreciate you coming on, uh, and good luck with everything. Absolutely, man. Likewise, it was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Jasir. Absolutely, no problem. Take care, guys. Bye. All right, take care. Gotta be honest with diamonds and pearls, yeah, yeah. Bengalis in New York, all over the world. Uh, it's the bony show. Uh, hey, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From the slang we spit to the gangs we with. It doesn't matter, we the essence of the Bangladesh. I say, hey, come on, can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live. From